Good morning. The scripture reading for today is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctifications by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letters. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Heavenly Father, God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that it would not simply be a practice, but Lord, it would be an opportunity for us to remember that we meet you in your word. God, may we be changed by our encounter with you this morning, and Lord, may we remember that we're promised that when we seek you, we will find you if we seek you with all of our hearts. So God, may that be so. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So King David, many of you may remember this or know this, but King David had a group of men, kind of elite soldiers, if you will, who traveled with him or were around him. and They were referred to as David's mighty men. And it was many of them, at least 30, more than 30 really, but there were several of them. All, many of them were named, but we don't know all the details about what all of them did, but we do know some of the details about what some of them did. Um, and specifically, uh, we know about three who were referred to as kind of the chiefs of all of these mighty men, and even one who was the chief among the chiefs. He was kind of the greatest of these men. His name was or if you're from Texas, Josheb Bashevith. <laughs> We're told in 2 Samuel 23 that he single-handedly in one battle killed 800 men. However, we aren't really given more detail than that regarding him, but there are two other of those three chiefs that uh, we're told about them, but we are given a detail about them that we weren't given about him. The first is a man named El-Azar, and he fought alongside David. What happened was the, the Philistines began to attack, and the entire army fled, and yet Elazar and David stood their ground, and Elazar began to fight. And he fought, and he fought, until he killed so many Philistines um, that the Scripture says his hand cleft to his sword and could not be removed. And then there was a man, the third of those chieftains, his name was Shammah. Shammah stood against the Philistines as well in a place called Lehi, uh, where everyone had been pushed back and they had been pushed back, and he just decided he was not going to give any more ground to the Philistines. And so the, when the rest of the army fled in retreat, Shammah stood his ground in a patch of lentils, 
and slew the entire advancing army by himself. These men were serious men. And yet the detail that jumps out to me when I read about them, among all the other things of just, wow, that's amazing. But the, the thing that jumps out to me about those last two is there's a little phrase that we're given in 2 Samuel that we're not given about the others. And it says this. It says, And when they began to advance, the rest of the men of Israel fled, and Eleazar or Shammah stood their ground. So the rest of the army ran away and they were left alone and yet they planted their feet firmly and refused to move. When things get difficult, as they most certainly do, and when standing for Christ can become difficult, even as we saw last week, there will always be those who fall away. There will always be those who leave. There will always be those who turn away, as it were, from the faith. See, in this day, as the people of God, when biblical principles that have been held for thousands of years are seen as outmoded or old-fashioned or worse, somehow increasingly dangerous, the people of God, see, when others back down, when others retreat, when others begin to try and redefine or unhitch themselves from the Word of God, followers of Christ, because of God's great love for us in Jesus, we must plant our feet firmly and refuse to back down, waver, sidestep, or capitulate in the face of cultural pressure. We have been redeemed when we did not deserve it. We have been shown unmerited favor. And His glorious grace toward us requires a solid stance from us. His glorious grace toward us requires a solid stance from us. See, often we can waver in our stance in the Lord Jesus Christ because we have forgotten or possibly never really fully understood the magnitude of the grace that has been shown to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the greatest truth, or one of the greatest truths that I have ever come to know, is that I have done nothing to earn the love of Christ. In fact... I have only done things that will earn His wrath. And if you're a follower of Christ, your salvation is nothing you have earned. Believer, we have been given a glorious gift in Christ. A glorious gift. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it begins right here in verse 13 by saying, but we ought always to give thanks. And this is the the second time, at least, that, that Paul has referred to the fact that they ought to do this. 
They ought to. It's only right. He's saying it's just, it's just right that I give thanks to God for this. It's right that I give thanks to God for what? And then he says something, and it's just a little parenthetical statement, but I think it is so key to something uh, for us to understand this morning, and that is this. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to our God, comma, beloved, brothers, beloved of the Lord. See, it's very important that you and I understand if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you are loved by God. That's, that's weak. You are loved by God. See, I, don't, I don't normally ask for amens, but I will on that one. See, because the truth is, is that oftentimes we believe that God simply puts up with us. That, that God, simply, when we go to pray, it's, we, it's like we think God's sitting there going, oh, you again? Come on. It, that God is somehow just deigning to, to our existence because, well, he died for us, so I guess um, that's what he does. No, no, hear me. Beloved, that's what he calls you. Beloved, God does not deign uh, to, to listen to you. God does not get annoyed when you come to Him. God is not frustrated with your existence. He loves you to your very core. He loves you, and He knows you better than you know you, and He loves you anyway. So He says, Beloved of the Lord. So we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now, I'll be really clear here. Um, the, the ESV that I just read, that God uh, chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Your, some of your translations may say that He has chosen you from the beginning to be saved. Without getting into a whole lot of technical detail, um, this is what's called a textual variant. There's a reason that it's translated differently um, in different uh, translations and why many of the newer translations use the term first fruits. And the reason is because once we found older fragments and things like that, what they find is that this word here for first fruits, if it's, if it's the other one, that it's from the beginning, uh, that's a phrase that's actually not used by the Apostle Paul anywhere in Paul's letters. But first fruits is a word, the word that Paul uses constantly in his letters. And so when we look at this, it's pretty obvious that the term should be first fruits. And what is he actually referencing? See, because when you talk about it being from the beginning, that gives it a temporal aspect and confuses things. He's saying first fruits. He's not even talking about that. He's actually talking about not time. He's talking about importance. First fruits. Just as the scripture says that, you and, uh, that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of of the resurrection, which means what? That he was the first one to rise from the dead, and so because of that, you and I can know that we too will rise from the dead, right? So that's the first fruits. Well, he's telling the Thessalonian believers, remember, what's the context of first Thess or Second Thessalonians? Really, First Thessalonians too. But it's suffering, difficulty, hardship, they're going through that. He's talked about that. They're dealing with suffering, difficulty, and hardship, and they're also dealing with false teachers, so it's hard. Things are difficult. The day-to-day -day living of the, of the Thessalonian believers is difficult. And he's saying, listen, you're loved by God. And what you need to remember is when things look their bleakest, guys, I praise God. I give thanks to God that you are the first fruits of salvation. 
Which is Paul's way of saying, hey, I know it looks bleak and I know it looks bad, but you're not the only ones that are going to get saved. God is still working in the midst of you. See, what an, what an exciting thing to know that today, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're in this room, you are but the first fruits of what God is doing. See, if, if you come, uh, Charles Spurgeon was asked one time by a young preacher. The young preacher was distraught. He came to him and he said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, I just... I struggle so much because I, I you know, I, no one gets saved. No one's coming to faith in Christ in my ministry. No one is, is, and so on and so forth. And Spurgeon just listened to him and then he kindly looked at him and he said, well, well brother, when you get up to preach, do you believe that people are going to get saved? And he said, well, no. And he goes, well, there's your problem. See, Paul refers to these Thessalonian believers as the first fruits. He's telling them, guys, you're not the only ones. Other people are going to come to faith in Christ. Other people are going to do that. And I thank God not only that you have been saved, but that you're just the first fruits. That there are others who will be saved. If you're a believer here this morning, Eastwood Baptist Church, I hope you believe as I do that God has something planned and He's going to bring more and more people to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of this church and He's going to bring glory to Himself and His name because of what He does. You are but the first fruits. So He says, I praise God or I thank God. I ought to thank God because of this. And how is it done? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth through sanctification of the spirit and in belief of the truth now we're gonna get a little theological for just a second so the apostle paul uses some different phrases to refer to our salvation he says um he says jeremy you have been saved so we'll put that one here you have been saved the other word he uses to refer to that is you have been justified which means you have been made right before God. You were once not right before God, but now because of what Jesus has done, you have been made right before God. You have been saved. You have been justified. Then he refers to another phrase where he says, Jeremy, it is now the calling upon your life that you be made continually holy. And so he refers to myself as being saved, like I am being saved. It's a constant thing. And the word we use for that, the first one is justified or justification. The second one is sanctification. It means a continual process of being made holy or more like Jesus. And then he looks at me and he says, now Jeremy, you got something to look forward to because one day you will be saved, which is uh, the, the, it's the future tense. It's something that is ultimate. And it is this word he uses, he refers to it as being glorified or glorification. So the Apostle Paul says, you and I have been saved once and for all. Once you come to faith in Jesus, you are locked in. You are saved. You are justified. But then you are continually being made more like Jesus. You are being sanctified. And then one day you will be with Jesus and you will be glorified. Okay, so that's the way that Paul talks about salvation. Almost always. Except here. So, what the Apostle Paul is saying in this tense, or, or in this, this, this sense, in this passage, is that your salvation has been done through the sanctification by the Spirit, or through the sanctifying work by the Spirit. What that means is this, the word sanctified also means to be made holy. And when something is made holy, it is, it's not that it's purified or cleaned, although that's a part of it. Technically, the word holy simply means to be set apart for a purpose. 
to be set apart for a purpose. So the, the utensils in the temple would be made holy. They would be set apart. for You didn't use the tongs in the temple for anything other than temple worship. They were holy. They were set apart. So he says, you and I have been saved by the work of the Holy Spirit because once you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins and we were not right before God. And then in that moment where we were brought before God and we were made right before God, the Holy Spirit made us positionally holy before God. And to put it another way, the Apostle Paul says, the moment you got saved, you have now been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you were in your sin, you were not able to be in the presence of God without experiencing His wrath. But the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit stamped you holy, and you can be in the presence of God. Okay, that's what it means. So he says it was done through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. So it was both God working to make you holy and you believing in the truth of the Word of God. That is how you have been made right before the Lord. But then look what he says. To this he called you through our gospel. Through our gospel. To this he called you through our gospel. So this is how it was done. It was not done, Paul's saying, it was not done by the amazing thinking and ministry design and charismatic personality of the Apostle Paul. It was not done by innovative ministry um, attempts or programs. It wasn't done by any of those things. He says, you came to faith in God. You were made holy and you were made right before Him through the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Whenever the Apostle Paul refers to the gospel, he wants everybody to know, I did not save anybody and you did not save yourself. It is the gospel and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that saved you. So he says, you were saved through our gospel, through the good news. Now I want to stop right here for just a moment. If you're in this room and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm so thankful that you're here, but I want you to hear something. See, the Bible is very clear, and this is not something that I revel in. This is actually something that, that I hate is true, but it is true nonetheless, and it is this. The Bible says that you're not neutral toward God. You're not, well, you know, I mean, I don't really believe in that Jesus stuff, but I mean, I'm also not a bad person. No, the Bible says very clearly, if you're not a believer, you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are an enemy of God, and you are under the just wrath of a holy and righteous God. And because of your sin, your direction for eternity is to spend it apart from the grace and mercy and love of God in a place called hell. That is very very, very bad news. But how does the Apostle Paul say that someone is redeemed, someone is forgiven, someone is made whole, someone is made right, someone is made holy, someone is saved? How does he say it happens? Through the gospel. See, all those things, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's all bad news. But he says you came because of the good news. That's what the word gospel means, is good news. The good news is all those things, or the bad news is, all those things are true. The good news is, 
they don't have to be your story. You can trust the Lord Jesus Christ today. You can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And you can turn from your sin and put your faith in Him, believing that He died for you and He rose again. And if you believe that, and you believe it with all of your heart, then the Scripture says that you can turn from that, put your faith in Him, and He will save you. And that is the good news of the Gospel. That you may be on your way to hell, but Jesus died for you so that you wouldn't have to be. And you can be made right before Him. So if that's you this morning, you can do that even today. Even now, you can turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. But what does this do? What's the end goal? See, the Apostle Paul actually gives us an end goal. He says, To this He called you through our gospel... So that you may obtain, so that, so here's the reason, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'll tell you, I don't know about you, I do personally. When I read that, I struggle with it at first. I struggle a little bit with it because I think, wait a second, I thought all glory and honor and power and dominion are His from this time forth and forevermore. I thought His was the glory. His was the power. I thought, I don't receive glory. I'm not, it's not my glory. I don't get that glory. Now hear me. It never said it was your glory or my glory. It never said you and I get glory. It said you and I get to share in the glory. That's a little different. See, the, re- the way that you and I share in the glory, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is there will come a point, just as you and I, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are identified with Jesus in His life and in His sufferings. When Jesus is revealed, as we just talked about in 2 Thessalonians and in 1 Thessalonians, When Jesus is revealed in all His glory, the Scripture says that He comes back with His saints. And He is in His glory, and we will be with Him. And so, hear hear this. This is not that God or Jesus loses glory, but actually this, in my mind, makes Him more glorious. Do you realize when He says we'll share in His glory? It's because we have no glory of our own. It's that we're simply near Him, and because we're near Him, some of His glory kind of kind of just lays over the top of us, as it were. We get to share in it. It's not ours. We just get to be a part of it. Why? Not because I have glory in myself, but because He is all glorious and I am near Him. Because what does 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 say? The the most glorious truth about the end is this. That the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him, and so we shall be with the Lord forever. We'll be with Him. And because we're with Him, He is in His glory, and so we will share in His glory. This is an amazing truth. We will be with Him. Believer, God's act in salvation had nothing to do with anything good in you or in me. It was completely, utterly, and totally because He loved you. What a tremendous grace. What a glorious gift. When was the last time you you stopped for just a few moments and thought about the amazing nature of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? When was the last time you stopped and thought This is how I was before I knew Jesus. 
And this is who I am now that I know Jesus. And this is the difference he made in me. When was the last time you stopped and thought about the fact that you were dead in your sin, outside the covenant of God, outside the family of God, with no hope in this life or the next? And yet, because of the great love with which he loved you, even while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you and showed his grace toward you. And he saved you when you deserved nothing but his wrath. When was the last time you stopped and thought about that amazing grace? I think it's important sometimes for us to hear the word of God and then just sit on it for a second. What an amazing grace. Because of this grace that we have been shown, we cannot be led astray. We cannot waver, falter, or back down. We can't accept the cultural idolatry of our day that seeks to have the people of God step back and slink into obscurity. But there's only one way. There's only one way for the church to stand and not fall. Believer, we have to cling to the treasured truth of Christ. Look at verse 15. So then, brothers, sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So, he says, so then, or consequently. You could even say, therefore. But he's, he's basing it on the grace that, of God. So the grace that you have been shown because of the immeasurable, amazing, overwhelming grace of God that you and I have been shown, because of this, stand firm and hold fast. That's, that's what he says literally. Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us. And then he says, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What is he saying? Either by the teaching of the apostles that we gave you when we were there, or basically by 1 Thessalonians. <laughs> so basically, what you were taught by us directly. What is he telling him? Or telling them? He's telling them that because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ you have been shown, you and I are called to stand firm and hold fast to the word of God. To stand firm and hold fast to the word of God. Now what I find interesting is that he had already said in verse 4 of chapter 1, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness. So the Apostle Paul says, I go to other churches and brag about you because you stand firm and you hold fast. And then he immediately says, Hey, by the way, make sure that you stand firm and hold fast. Why on earth does he brag about the fact that they do this, but then tell them to do it? Well, I think it's important. 
is I think it's important that we don't live on who we were in the past, but we recognize that the Christian life and standing firm and holding fast is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment thing. So I remember, you may know of this, but I, I, for many of you know that I went to Criswell College in, in Dallas, and Criswell College was named after W.A. Criswell, who was one of many men and uh, those that were behind what they call the conservative resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention. No time to explain all that. There are plenty of books you can read about it, whatever else, but in a nutshell it's this. Theological liberalism had swept its way through the seminaries and things like that, and they were producing, uh, they were were teaching things that were contrary to the Word of God. And so in the the early 80s, really even a little bit before that, but definitely the, the hot portion of it was in the 80s. Um, in the 80s, there, were, there was a group of people who stood up and basically said, we're not going to let this happen. Now, most of the time when, when conventions swept away into liberalism, you just kind of said, well, okay, and you just let it happen because it's too hard to turn it around. But they stood up and said, no, we're not going to let that happen. And they fought for the fact because what was being taught was that the Bible has errors. The Bible's not true. They didn't believe in what they call inerrancy of Scripture. And so that was what was being taught. And so the stance was, no, we believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. And they fought it and ultimately or subsequently won uh, that battle. It was actually referred to as the battle for the Bible. Now, the reason I mention all that is I remember in college, I started college in 2001, and it almost never failed because they were, I guess because they were coming to Criswell, they felt that every single chapel service, every single chapel speaker we had would talk about the conservative resurgence. They would talk about it like it happened yesterday. When the fact is, much of it happened before I was ever born. And they talked about it like it happened yesterday. And the reason it's important, yes, it's important to remember the, few, or the, the past and so that we don't repeat it. What happened was, some people began to live on simply what was done in the past and stop paying attention to what was happening currently. And now what's happened is we have a problem in the, not just in the convention, but overall in Christianity, but we have a problem. We've moved away from arguing about the inerrancy of Scripture and now we have a problem understanding or believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. See, what we don't believe now is that the Bible is enough. We think that it's important that we be culturally relevant, that it's about my ideas. And you want a good past, you got to find one that's creative and innovative and, and has a lot of ingenuity and all those other things. You don't need any of that. We need the Bible because the Bible is sufficient for every single solitary thing that you can encounter. We're told by the Apostle Peter that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have been given all these things. And so the Word of God is sufficient. And if the Word of God is sufficient, we don't only stand on the fact that it is 100% true, which I thoroughly believe, but we also stand firmly in the fact that it is enough. We stand firm. We hold fast to what? To what we know to be true. That's what he tells them. The traditions that we have given you, either by spoken word or by our letter. We stand firm in those. This is what, whenever this happens, when, when we don't stand firm, when we don't hold fast to what we know to be true, it looks like pastors or churches 
who begin to soften or ignore biblical truth in an attempt to become more relevant. It looks like pastors and churches, when they begin to believe that we have to avoid certain biblical teachings or practices so that we can remain connected to the culture in some way. Believer, we have to stand firm in the truth we know from the Word of God. We have to stand and hold fast to the truth of what is revealed in His Word. We must not waver regardless of the pressure. We have to cling to the truth we have in Christ and in His Word. And the Apostle Paul reminds them of this. And while we must certainly stand firm and hold fast and cling even to the truth of God's Word, we must also know that we cannot do this under our own power. Believer, we have to depend on the wonderful work of Christ. Look what he says in verse 16. It's, it's interesting. Paul, First and Second Thessalonians, and technically speaking, it's kind of common in most of his letters, but sometimes he'll teach, and then in the middle of his teaching, he breaks out almost in a song, um, as it were, and then, and then other times he's teaching, and in the middle of his teaching, he just sort of stops and prays for him. And then he keeps teaching, and then he prays for him, and, he pre- and then he prays. He just does it constantly, and that's kind of what this is. In verse 16, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, which he already told us, because he called us beloved of the Lord, who loved us, so that's the foundation, and gave us eternal comfort. How did God give us eternal comfort? Well, he gave us eton- eternal comfort Because while things may be hard in this life, and while things can be difficult, and even following Christ can be difficult, and and there can be hardship, and life is just uh, hard sometimes, and and, and things come our way, trials and and afflictions, even though those things happen, we can have eternal comfort. Because we can find comfort in the fact that we will spend eternity with Him. So He gives us not only, not only are we loved by Him, And not only has he given us eternal comfort, but he also gave us a good hope. That's an interesting phrase. A good hope. Obviously, as opposed to a bad hope. Right? To be honest, it's similar to the way we think of hope uh, often, the bad hope portion. We will say things like, well, I'm leaving at 9 and I hope I get there on time. Which is basically a, a way of saying... I'm leaving at 9, and I would like to get there on time, but I know there's a chance I may not. So I'm just saying this for some random reason. Right? That's what we mean by hope. It could happen. I'd like for it to happen, but it may not happen. That's what we mean by hope. That's not what the Scripture means when it uses the word hope. The word hope in Scripture means a confident expectation in a future event, so much so that you speak about that future event as if it already happened. That's how confident you are in it. So when we are given a good hope, that's not a shaky hope. That's not a, 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 um, that's not a, a broken or a faltering hope. It is a good hope. It's one you can take to the bank. It's one you can stand fast and or stand firm and hold fast to. It's a good hope, but how does it come? Through grace. Through grace. It comes through the unmerited favor of God. This happens. 
The love He has shown us, the eternal comfort He has given us, and the good hope that we have only comes because of who He is and it is not because of what I have done. And what does He say? Because that's all introduction to His prayer. Right? He says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish them. So here's the two things that he wants to happen. He wants their hearts to be comforted and he wants them to be their hearts to be established. Right? So may he comfort your hearts. Why? What, what again, what's the context of 2 Thessalonians? Affliction, hardship, difficult. They're, they're dealing with false teachers, all that stuff. So it's it's not easy. And so he is praying first and foremost that God would simply comfort them, that he would bring comfort to their hearts. But then he says and that he would establish your hearts. Establish them. Um, this word means to cause someone or something to become stronger in the sense of more firm and unchanging in an attitude or a belief. It's the exact opposite of what he was referring to in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. It's the exact opposite. Don't, it, this false teaching had a tendency to... Uh, to cause them to be shaken in mind or alarmed. And the Apostle Paul is praying to God and saying, could you establish them? Now, now, now hear this. He bragged about their steadfastness, so they're standing firm and they're holding fast, other churches. But then he commands them to stand firm and hold fast. And then he says, but I know you actually can't do that, so God, would you please make them stand firm and hold fast? Establish them. That's what it means, to make them stand firm, to make them hold fast. God, would you please do that? But what does he make you stand firm and hold fast in? What does he establish you in? In every good work and word. In every good work and word. This is significant. These two always have to go together. What you say and how you act have to go together. It's not enough, believer, to simply say that you believe and you're going to stand firm. Believer, disciple of Christ, member of Eastwood Baptist Church, the time has passed for followers of Christ to follow Him in word only. The time has passed for our members to simply attend church and do nothing more. The time has passed for us to be what my father calls Baptist sponges. You ever taken a sponge and Gotten it wet and then not... You remember your mama used to always tell you, make sure you wring that out before you put it on the back of the sink? Why? Because if you don't, about two days later, you'll know what's wrong halfway down the hall. Right? It smells terrible. You know why it smells terrible? You know why your mama always said, make sure you rinse that out and wring it out before you put it back? It's because sponges are intended to pull in, but then they're immediately intended to put out. They're, they're not intended to hold. And the reason he called them Baptist sponges is because there's so many people in the church today who come to church and they sit and then they soak and then they sour. 
And the reason they sour is because we were not created to be sponges. We were created to fill up and then immediately give out. And you say, well, then what do you do after you give it out? Come back and get filled up again. And then give out some more. You say, well, what if I'm, what if I'm, 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 I'm living outwardly so much that, that I just, I'm constantly giving? Well, then you better be filling up every morning with the Word of God and in prayer and in worship. Because you're designed, you are not designed to simply sit and soak up. You got to say, I'm not going to simply talk anymore. But I got to ask myself, do I just talk the talk or, or do I walk the walk? See, today, we need to commit and say, no longer will I be an attender. No longer will I simply be a consumer in the house of the Lord. I have been called to stand firm in my faith, to hold fast to what I know, and I have been called to serve the body of Christ for the glory of God, and the time has come for me to put action to my faith. No longer should you be able to just show up on Sunday morning and that's it. No longer. See, every one of us, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a member here at Eastwood Baptist Church, then you're a believer. You have been given the Holy Spirit. And if you're a member here, then the Holy Spirit was given to you so that you have been, you have been given a gift. So well, I don't know that I have a gift. No, the Bible promises you do. That just means you don't know what it is yet. But you have been given a gift. And if you've been given a gift, then it is incumbent upon you to serve the body. Because church is not about what you can come and get. Church is you. So it's actually about what you can do for the body. Time is gone to say I'm simply going to be a consumer. And we need to come in and say, I want to serve. Where can I do the most good for the glory of God and the advance of His kingdom? And if you're here this morning, again, as I said, and you've never trusted Christ, while you may be on your way to an eternity in hell, it doesn't have to be that way. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus died for you. And if you put your faith in Him, He will save you.